Are you ready to have an open and honest discussion about sex and spiritual wellness without secrets, censorship, or barriers? This is Unbuckled with your host, Christy Ann Bella. In this program, there are no topics that are off the table, from religion to health, feelings to sexuality. Get ready to hear from some incredible people. And now, here's Christy Ann Bella. Hello and welcome. I am Christiane Bella, your intimacy architect, and today we are unpacking so much juicy stuff, feelings, uh, complex trauma, chronic illness, interpersonal relationships. I mean, my guest, they are just a phenomenal person that I became a huge fan of via social media and have gotten so much great stuff out of their work. I did one of their parts work web- webinars. Um, and so I'm super excited to welcome to Unbuckled, Margo Feldman. Welcome, Margo. Hi, Christiane. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. So yeah, like I said, um, I, I've been following your stuff for quite some time now. Um, you are a writer and educator, and you have written many zines, which we were just talking about. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's like a short for magazine. Um, and you've published some great stuff on the topics of chronic illness, complex trauma, how our trauma and illnesses relate. Um, you know, you have one about uh, the, the trauma of a poor child, like growing up a poor kid. Um, just so much fantastic work on looking inward. And and I think one of the greatest things that I, I love about your stuff is is the deconstruction of language, which I'm sure for you being someone with a PhD in English, you know, this is how your brain must hyper-focus in on, on language and the words we're using and the meanings and defining. Um, and so one of the things that I, I recently messaged you about because I'm I'm reframing the way I'm approaching things and and restructuring the word healthy. And um, and that was a post of yours that really spoke to me. And so I would love to even start there on um, what is it about language that you feel can either remove or further the oppression of, of how we're, we're speaking about something. Um, what is, what are some of the patterns that you've noticed and why has it been an important piece for you to help, uh, spread the knowledge of deconstructing language and having more awareness about the words that we use? Mm, Oh, that's such a beautiful question. I was so excited to nerd out about language. Um, yeah, I mean, it, gosh, Language is like everything to me. I mean, every word that we use holds just a variety of different like meanings, uh, historically, contextually, personally. And I've always been so interested in how language can be this tool of liberation on the one hand and oppression Mm -hmm. on the other. Um, You know, the words that we use hold power and significance and, you know, can really harm us. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think like on a more personal level, like I think that language allows us to feel seen. which is like really I think what every human wants is to like feel like oh someone understands me and you know growing up in the family that I grew up in in the suburbs where like there was some poverty but you didn't really see it it wasn't a thing that people talked about And I didn't know anyone else who had like lost a mother or who had a disabled Mm -hmm. parent. And so literature really became this way for me to feel like someone else out there understood some aspect Mm -hmm. of my experience. And, you know, there were experiences or, or things that I felt you know, like as an example, like again, growing up in the suburbs in like the late nineties, early two thousands, people were not talking about feminism. Like that was not part of the conversation. 
Um, and so going to university and like moving into Toronto and going to a class where like someone introduced me to that word, I was like, oh my God, suddenly I have this word that allows me to make sense of these things that I've like felt inside of me. Um, and now I can like express that, uh, in a way that I couldn't before. And so, yeah, I just think that that's profoundly powerful. Um, so yeah, maybe that I could go on and on, uh, but maybe I'll, I'll pause there. I love that. Yeah. I, um, I mean, it it was a huge help for me in, because another one that really stuck, struck out to me was um, this idea of taking out the language of self-destruct and really witnessing the idea that, that this judgment comes with that as opposed to seeing, and I loved you use the term trauma logic. And I would love to dive into that because I think, I, I mean, at least for me, you know, it's only in the last couple of years that I, I'm not judging my trauma. I'm not like, oh, this trauma, like this, like this is a horrible way. And it's like, no, like this, you know, how am I actually deconstructing this in a way to see what I've learned from it, how I'm operating from it, how I can change those operating systems when I'm witnessing it from this more objective place as opposed to judging it as being wrong and bad and and that my actions as a result of it are also wrong and bad. Um, and so to shift from this idea of self-destruction to honoring where I'm just trying to survive and manage and um, and so this idea of trauma logic to, to feel – because I think – traumatized people or the idea is like that you don't have logic like that you're some kind of broken shell of a person and um and you need to be cradled away you know and and so i i loved that term it felt so empowering and and so like yes like i am making choices like i recognize those choices are maybe being influenced by experience but i have an awareness it's not that you know so um yeah i would love to just I know that isn't quite a question, but <laughs> just okay, I, got, I got lots to say. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was so empowering for me when I came across that phrase of trauma logic, which mm-hmm. I discovered through Janina Fisher's book, Healing mm-hmm. the Fragmented Selves of Trauma yeah. Survivors. And she gets that from Pat Ogden, um, who she's written about sensory motor therapy with. Um and there is, you know, I, I grew up using a lot of like what would be called self-destructive, mm-hmm. like, you know, coping mechanisms from mm-hmm. like substance use, uh, you know, really like dangerous, like sex, like stealing, like all sorts of, you know, yeah, dangerous behaviors. And, and then when I shifted out of that in like my early 20s, I just felt so much shame like so deeply that it was actually even hard for me to look at photos of myself from Mm -hmm. those years of my life Mm -hmm. without going into just shut down. Um, I couldn't look at that younger self with compassion and, and care. And I think so much of that, you know, coming back to this piece around language, like Mm -hmm. language, Language, like, you know, should be neutral, but it's not. It's, like, loaded with judgment and meaning. And um, and so I just think about how that, like, language of, like, self-destructive yeah. is not only shaming, but also it's just inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Like, in this weird paradoxical way... Mm-hmm. Like, yes, like, you know, using substances the way that I use them, which was very problematic, and very dangerous. Like, yeah, you could have looked at me and been like, oh, my gosh, Margo is just like pure death drive and like right. doesn't want to live and is making reckless decisions. But actually, now I like see that as this part of me that so wanted to survive. Right. And, you know, but like my the circumstances I was living through were just deeply unbearable for this young, you know, adolescent. And so, you know, these, these behaviors that I engaged in 
like actually kept me alive. And I mean, I'm very grateful that like, I, you know, never wound up in the hospital or, you know, um, had something actually life-threatening happen, which of course is like a possibility, but that reframe, you know, and this idea of like, yeah, this isn't, we're not just make, like, we're not just these like humans, who are being driven by like irrational desires that we have like no control over. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, these are parts of ourselves that like developed mm-hmm. to, you know, help us get through. And so that shift for me just has opened up this door where I can like look at teenage Margot and be like, wow, I'm so sorry that you had to do all of these things Mm -hmm. to survive, that you didn't have access to the kinds of supports that would have, you know, enabled you to flourish more and that wouldn't have been so, so traumatic. And, you know, the other piece too, when I think about like this language is like, you know, self-destructive behavior, like, and this concept really places the onus on the individual Mm. and really pathologizes the individual and fails to actually look at like, what are the circumstances that made those choices the only viable option? And how do we make changes on a larger scale level so that individuals aren't having to default to these behaviors that, you know, I think are supportive at the time, but we later like recognize like, oh, wow, like that, that really messed me up actually. Um, Yeah. Yeah, The tools just to, to be honest about what tools and resources you had and, and to let go of that judgment and recognize like you were putting in place what you needed in the moment to navigate as best as you could. And, you know, and I think, yeah, shedding that that judgment and that shame allows you to make new choices and not feel like, well, this is the best it gets, or this is all that it's worth, you know, and, and to shift that idea um, to open up. And, and I love the idea of, we have this like more social community accountability of like, you know, yeah, what, what, how are we setting up people for it? Cause I think often, you know, in teen years, there's this idea of the rebellious teen and, and this acting out as a teenager. Um, it's often, you're, you're often just kind of thrown away of like, well, what did you expect? You know? And, and, and so to actually come in and, and, look at it as like, well, how can we actually support this person instead of further (laughs) isolating them and making them, yeah, feel, feel that shame. Um, So yeah, one of, one of the things I was really drawn to was this idea, you know, we, we talk about a lot uh, in the new age or healing communities and and wellness communities about inner child work. And, um, and something I saw that you were doing was inner teenage work. And I was like, oh my God, why is that like, Hello. Cause I was like, yeah, sure. My inner, you know, five-year-old, she needs some love, but like my inner 16 year old, like she really needs some TLC and compassion and acceptance and integration. And, um, and so I was just really blown away by that. I was like, oh my God, this needs to be everywhere. Um, and so, you know, as you mentioned, you, you know, you, you had a challenging upbringing, um, you had lost your mother and, and your father was disabled. Um, and you yourself um, have been navigating disability, chronic illness. And so were you, that's something that you came to later on in life, right? An awareness of of your illness, yeah, was was something that you came to later on. Um, And so how have you been able to integrate and what what kind of spawned this idea of like, wow, my inner teenager Mm -hmm. is the one who really needs some help? Um, making the connection to see how that trauma was was playing into your um, physical situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think you know, coming to this like recognition of like the inner teenager came from just like reading so much stuff talking about your inner child, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't have a lot of like memories from my childhood or really from my adolescence. And I've 
exploring like whether, you know, my mom's death at the age of 11 was really the starting point of trauma for me, or if there's something earlier or like epigenetic. Um, But in general, you know, I feel frustrated. Like I read these books on attachment theory and developmental trauma and I like see myself. I am like, wow, this is me. And yet you're talking about, you know, ages like, you know, like the newborn to, you know, maybe eight or nine years old as being like when that wounding happens. And at this point, as far as I can remember, you know, those years of my life were really good like and really supportive and really loving. And so I'm just like, well, obviously I'm not, uh, you know, a psychologist or like clinical, you know, I haven't done that training. And so obviously I don't want to tell people who have, you know, done all of that studying and years of like research and training that like maybe there's something missing but it felt to me that there was something missing and that, you know, my inner child didn't need that much mm-hmm. from me. What the parts of me that needed tending to were like, you know, preteen and teenage me. Yeah. And the needs of a teenager and a preteen are very mm-hmm. different than the needs of a child. Yeah. Because like as a teenager, like, you want to be seen as like independent Mm -hmm. and, you know, you want to have this, like, you want to have your feelings validated and, you know, you might be like, you know, no longer just like running to like your caregivers to like hug you and like hold you when you're crying because like you want to be like, you know, self-sufficient. And so, yeah, like, and, and I do think that there are, translatable like needs that we have across like all ages um you know the need to be seen and validated in our experience and the need for like our caregivers to celebrate us and no matter what and you know to care for us even when we mess up like those those go across but you know when I think about my you know inner child or even like 11 year old me like they want to be held mm-hmm. like very clearly, like, but teenage me, like teenage me wants that, but like, isn't going to let you know mm-hmm. that they want that. But if you were just to like, you know, I had this visualization once of like my mom coming and sitting on my bed with like teenage me yeah. and just sort of saying, you know, like, I can see that you're hurting and like, I'm here And it's okay if you don't want to talk right now, you know, and we can just sit here quietly and, you know, and she just stayed there with me. And then, you know, after a couple of minutes, I could feel like my inner teenager be like, okay, yes, like I want, I want this connection now. And, you know, so had my mom in this like vision, like gotten up and just been like, okay, well, teenage Margot doesn't want me to be around then I actually wouldn't have received like the experience like that I needed. Um, So, so yeah, I'm curious about like, you know, again, like what, what are the lines of affinity, but also what is different and like, what do those inner teenagers need that actually looks quite different from our inner children? Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's, it's that weird in between point where you aren't an adult, but you're you're on your way. You're 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 doing the the practice legwork to figure out what does that mean to be an independent person. Um, I think there's some grief of letting go of the childhood of of letting go of that you know those stages of our life, and and it's this strange flux that I feel like you know is is so challenging that it's people are just like yeah we're just gonna skip right over that. <laughs> Um, and you'll go to therapy when you're 30 and then you'll, you know, but it's like, no, this is really such a gift to, to have that insight to see like, yeah, what, what is the, the need there? Um, and so parts work, um, and, and integrated family systems. Cause you mentioned like, you know, you sat and you had this visual with your mom. Um, would you put that under parts work or do you feel like that is more of, of integrated family systems and how do you kind of 
overlap or separate the two? Yeah, I had to make like a whole Instagram post on this because like, uh, as I was sort of like discovering Janina Fisher's work, which then gave me the language for what I'd been doing in therapy for the past four plus years, you know, I was also hearing, you know, I had heard people talk about IFS um, and, and Richard Schwartz's book had just like come out. So then I was like, okay, so I, you know, put my academic hat on and was like, all right, I'm going to like read this and like see what the similarities and what the differences are. Um, So that visualization is something that could fall into either camp. Uh, Parts work, you know, uh, definitely like, and when I say parts work, I am referring specifically to Janina Fisher's like articulation of that. There are so many different kinds of parts work but that's that's what I'm referring to um the you know giving our inner children our inner teenagers that missing experience Mm -hmm. is integral to both um and but where some of like the differences are you know is that with like a parts work approach we are thinking about people who are living with like complex trauma yeah. and, and dissociation. Mm-hmm. And with IFS, you know, you might be working with people with complex trauma mm-hmm. and dissociation, but you also might just be working, you know, like we all have like parts within us is essentially, right. you know, what Schwartz says and, you know, we can think about the ways that, yeah, someone might ask you what you want to eat for dinner. And you're like, one part of me wants to have a salad and the other part of me wants to eat pizza. Like, so, so we all have that um, living within us. Parts work uses different language than IFS. Like IFS has these like metaphors of, you know, the firefighter, the exile um, and the manager and parts work focuses more on thinking about our trauma responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can use different labels in either. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know some people have like given their different parts, like different names, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really beautiful. And, and so the, the names don't necessarily matter as much as, you know, getting a sense of, of who these parts are and like what their needs are, what the roles are that they've been playing and to really show them that there is this adult self now that's present mm-hmm. and that adult self is us. Like yeah. we are the adults now yeah. and we can give ourselves the experiences that we missed out on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it takes the idea of reparenting yourself to this next level. Um, and, and yeah, I found, and it's funny, you know, one of those things that just happened instinctually, um, you know, when I really started to connect to, to parts of my inner children, child, uh, I, I feel like they're children, there's, there's many of them. Um, but, you know, one felt like, um, this, like this little boy energy, and, and I gave him the name Casey. And I'm like, Casey is my energy that's kind of like, like, Lenny and of mice and men like he means well and he's very loving but he will like hulk smash and destroy something because he doesn't realize in this quest to try to feel connection what what occurs and so just to be able to see that and be like oh okay this is when I'm in that place these are the patterns these are the habits and how what what do you need actually to feel that love I can give that to you now and so you don't have to what I call drive the bus like you don't have to be be the one, you know, uh, calling the shots for the the inner psyche, and and I, I find it interesting. You know, I think so much of the the integrated family systems, um, kind of these like archetypes. It is very like Jungian style of like you know archetypes, and um, but I think it's helpful to just have this little separation. It's like it is you, but it isn't all of you, and. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, I, I found it incredibly therapeutic in, in a way to just kind of deconstruct and then reintegrate once I was able to, like, identify and sort things out. 
Um, so we are actually getting ready to take a break and I want to be sure everyone can find you because you've got to follow them on Instagram. Love, 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 like game changing stuff. Um, so you can find them on Instagram. It is Margo, that's M-A-R-G-E-A-U-X dot Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N. Um, and it's the same Margo Feldman at uh, com, And you can go directly to her website and um, that's where you can get all the zines, which are these published pieces on uh, different aspects of poverty, trauma, illness. So we are going to jump back in right after this break with more on Unbuckled. Are you tired of having the same fight over and over again? Is it hard to remember a time when you felt close to each other? Before you call it quits, do you want to do something to rebuild that spark of intimacy? Of course you do. Ignite the passion like never before with Intimacy Architecture. Text 626-310-5159 to set up your relationship consultation. Again, text 626-310-5159. Think about how much sound you hear all the time. Noise, music, your own heartbeat. What is it made of? How does it work? How does it affect you? The universe of music takes you into the particles of life and the beat of living. It is an interactive online masterclass of music and science taught by the internationally renowned musician and scholar, Dr. Marcin Bella. Visit theuniverseofmusic.com. That's theuniverseofmusic.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Unbuckled with Christy Ann Bella. Reach out to Christy Ann with any questions or comments at intimacyarchitect at gmail.com. That's intimacyarchitect at gmail.com. Christy Ann welcomes your emails. Now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Christy Ann Bella, and we are Unbuckling the World of Interpersonal Relationships, Awareness of Trauma, Disability, um, just the complexities of, of how we show up in the world and, and the language that we use behind that. And with me is, uh, my guest, Margot Feldman. Welcome, Margot. Thank you for being here. Mm, so great to be part of this conversation with you. So before the break, uh, we touched a little bit on, um, well, I guess we touched a lot on, on inner teen work and parts work and integrated family systems and, and all of that good stuff. Um, I would love to explore a little bit more. You are, um, you're actually part of a, is it like a con- conscious community? I don't know exactly the right term, but I, I loved the idea of like, you know, it's people who are really focused on a world that works in a world that works to oppress and divide. How do we care for one another and ourselves? And that's really like the intentionality of the space that you're living in. Um, how did you find yourself there? Mm. Yeah, I have a very ambivalent relationship with care. Mm. Um, you know, in addition to to my mom's death, you know, when when I was eleven, like we didn't have you know family or community really there to provide support for my brother and I, and I became the like mother of the house and did all the cooking, cleaning, chores, you know, took care of my younger brother while my dad was at work. Um, And then within a couple of years of of her death, he started to get sick. Mm. And so then, you know, my caregiving increased uh, to, to help him you know, with his work and eventually getting to this place of having to help him eat and bathe. And, you know, as he waited to get approved for um, disability and get personal like care workers in. Mm -hmm. But even after that, there were still, you know, hours of the day where people weren't around. So care was like something that you know, wasn't really consensual 
And it was something that I had to do mm-hmm. and that I had to do at a very young age. Um, and that absence of support from family, from community is like, I have so much grief around that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I recognized that there was another way that we could have existed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I talk about, yeah, like, you know, just this investment in thinking about how do we care for ourselves mm-hmm. in the face of like oppression, you know, how do we care for ourselves when we live in a world that actively causes harm yeah. um, and trauma and violence and death uh, to, you know, basically anyone who isn't like a cis straight white man, but even there, I think there's trauma and damage that's right. absolutely happening um, you know, this question of like, how do we care for each other? And and how do I actually heal this trauma that I have that I've like called like caregiver trauma? Mm-hmm. How do I heal that so that I can accept care from others yes. and, and also care for others in my life? Mm-hmm. And that question became so critical when I became sick, you know, because that the onset of illness for me really didn't happen until like 2017. I mean, if I look back, I was like sick throughout my life and you know, that, that was always kind of like a presence there, but becoming chronically ill Mm -hmm. and disabled meant that I had to receive support from people and to recognize like, Oh, they're giving me this care because they want to Right. like, this isn't something mm-hmm. that they feel like, you know, forced into. Yeah. And therefore I don't have to feel bad about receiving mm-hmm. it. Um, and it took a lot of mm-hmm. work in therapy to decouple yes. care from trauma mm-hmm. yeah. and to see care as something that we are all, owed that we all deserve and that as we live in the world right now care is sort of like meted out by like state Mm -hmm. systems and institutions that are not giving people nearly enough of what they need and calling that care Mm -hmm. um and so i you know finding the world of like disability activism and disability studies like suddenly opened this door to like, Oh my gosh, like community care is so much more than we have like imagined. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I'm just like deeply indebted to like that lineage of humans, you know, and I'm thinking of like, Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasena, who has a book called Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, which is like so, like I reference it a million times over and over. Um, There are so many folks within that movement who have been giving us the examples of what care can look like. And it's been so fascinating in the wake of COVID Mm. to see people showing up in ways that were not happening prior to this moment really outside of like queer disabled community um, and like non-white communities where, you know, community care has always been the norm Mm -hmm. and colonialism and racism has like, you know, stripped, uh, strip that community away because it's a threat uh yeah that you know how do we care for each other in this world that we're living in feels like one of the most important questions we can really be asking ourselves and dreaming up yeah I remember when somebody told me that um one of the big pieces of the Black Panther movement was to provide acupuncture. And it was like, why, 
why is this not something more people are aware of? You know, why is it, you know, like when, when I'm, I learned in school, it was like, they were like the enemy and they, and it's like, no, these were people out there trying to help their community have tools of self care to nurture their nervous system, to heal, to, and I'm just like, this is just such a disservice that we do, like you're saying, to, to try to like come in and strip that away. And, and, you know, um, so, so yeah, so the, the idea of, of seeing communities like take that power back and, um, to be able to untangle. I remember somebody asked me once, um, you know, if I was going to, I was like, no, I don't see myself having kids. And they're like, well, who's going to take care of you when you get old? And I was like, Wow, because that's why you had kids. <laughs> like, do your kids know that? I'm like, because that's pretty fucked up. Like, to just assume this sort of entitlement and this, like, you know, I brought you into this world. Now you owe me. Um, and so, yeah. So to be able to see, like, like a choosing a consensual community coming together consciously to to help support each other in the ways that we all you know, are able, like what, what are we able to show up and do and what are we choosing to show up and do? And what does that look like when we come together as a collective and, and understand that the ability to show up and, and be supportive to someone else comes from you knowing how to take care of yourself as well and, and, and to not burn out. Um, Cause I think there's a great deal, you know, of, of martyrdom that can come with this idea of like, oh, I'm going to fly in and be the, the angel of mercy. Um, and, and really to, uh, yeah, to, to really hold yourself accountable of how you're showing up to first. Yeah. Like do, do your inner work before we go, go outside of ourselves. Um, well, this is like, you know, yeah. something that, you know, I've had numerous doctors like, and like different alternative medicine practitioners like say to me is that like mm-hmm. my chronic pain is the result of like, just, having to always care for other people for the majority of my life and never really taking care of my own needs, Mm -hmm. never prioritizing myself. And then it's like, my body was literally like, we can't do this anymore. Like this isn't sustainable. And, you know, so that like boundary work is such a Mm -hmm. huge piece. Um, You have to, you know, know what, your boundaries are and know when you need to be refilling your cup because if you don't, you know, and this has been such a hard lesson for me because I still, you know, this, my identity and sense of value in the world has been shaped around giving care. And so even when I have like a best friend reach out who needs some support and it's usually just emotional support, but sometimes I'm not in a place to give that. And I have to say, no, I'm sorry. Like that's one of the most terrifying things ever. And all I get from those friends is like, I'm so glad you're taking care of yourself too. I will reach out to this other person, Mm -hmm. you know, and and we can do that because again, there's community, which I know is a privilege that so many people don't have. Um, But this is, you know, where I want us to be building more of our like skill sets mm-hmm. so that, uh, yeah, it's not just like this weird default to like, oh, my kids will take care of me, you know, even though I burst them into the world without their consent. And now <laughs> I'm just like, take care of me. Cool. Like, oh, don't love, don't love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when when you're kind of con- confronting the the effects of of trauma and illness and seeing these the challenges to set boundaries you know this own this internal conflict um what are some of the techniques or or um some of the processes maybe someone can begin to use because I feel like people pleasing is, is just almost like a plague that we have of this idea that our worth comes from what I've done. Um, Is there a way to start untangling that to, to be able to start setting those boundaries? And because I know, you know, for me coming out of trauma, the idea of like, I, I avoided conflict then I was just like, whatever, like whatever to make you happy. Like, cause I don't, 
want to have to like take the energy to to do that thing to like have the uncomfortable conversation. So what were some of the ways that you began to kind of build that muscle? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't, everyone else got to have boundaries growing up. I did not get to have them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so boundaries were either like very rigid yeah. um, or non-existent mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it, you know, my attempts at asserting boundaries growing up were met with punishment, mm-hmm. the withholding of love, disappointment. Um, you know, my boundaries were never received with affirmation or validation. And so, yeah, boundaries became tethered to like real consequences mm-hmm. that impacted my ability to like receive love and care. So of course it felt safer to not have boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, for me, starting that practice really started with my two best friends in probably my like early-ish 20s, Um, you know, because romantic relationships felt too scary to do that with and family felt even way scarier than that uh so you know when I'm doing boundary work workshops that I do with my best friend Natalie like you know we really suggested people to like start small is there like one person in your life that you feel safe enough with mm-hmm. um because we have to recognize that even with our safest humans and I mean these two best friends have been in my life for over 15 years now yeah. They have never once, I mean, well, I don't want to say never once. There have definitely been times where like our boundaries have butted up against each other and we've had to like move through that. But consistently what I've received from them is like, thank you for sharing that boundary with me. Um, And we really see boundaries as actually like a gift and an opening to relationality rather than the belief that so many of us hold that like boundaries are some sort of like wall or barrier to Mm -hmm. connection, Mm -hmm. but it's like, no, when I actually express my boundary, I'm doing that because I want to be in relation with you. If I didn't want to be in relation with you, like I would just like never talk to you again Mm -hmm. or something. But so I think like, you know, remembering that, you know, I'm sharing this boundary with this person Mm -hmm. because I value our relationship because I want them to know me more Mm -hmm. because I know that they want to love and care for me in the way that I need to be loved and cared for. Um, Doing that conceptual like reframing takes a lot of work, but I would say start small as well you know don't go to like the biggest most activating like boundary that you think you could set but you know starting small with you know even like if your friend is like hey do you want to like go and do this thing tonight Mm -hmm. uh when we hang out like being like oh no I'd actually rather do this other thing you know and that the stakes of that still might feel very high to your nervous system but it's like that smaller starting point mm-hmm. and practicing there. And I do recommend really like intentionally practicing and yeah. like saying to that other person, you know, and maybe they also struggle with boundaries. So it can be like a, a process for right. both of you, but to say like, Hey, I really like boundaries terrify me. And you feel like a human that I could practice that with. Mm-hmm. And so can we even just like play this game where, you know, and we do this in, in the workshop where people have to like make a request for something mm-hmm. and that other person has to respond with no, whatever that looks like for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's always like something small and something that obviously is not going to happen in real life because mm-hmm. these humans don't know each other. But, you know, it's like, can I walk your dog? Uh, you know, can I open the door for you? Like. And, and yeah, and so each person has to like make that request and hear the no mm-hmm. and, and really then like talk about like, okay, like what happened in my body yeah. when you asked me for that? And I knew that I was going to say no, uh, where was the charge? 
And the more that we can receive someone else's uh, no with grace and compassion and celebration, that is this other core piece because like our neural pathways and our brains have literally been wired around like saying no equals whatever bad thing. Um, So saying, so seeing that like we can say no and that person is still going to hug us Mm -hmm. or say, I love you or, you know, thank us. We need that repetition in order to like show our trauma brain that like, oh, okay. Like doing X doesn't always result in this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the misconception that boundaries are like this, like ultimatum of like, you're going to do it or I'll never talk, you know, it's like, no, this is, this is really such a gift to, to understanding and creating better connections, better relationships. And I remember the first time somebody said, thank you. When I said no. And I was like, I was so taken. I was like, what happened? Um, Cause I was all set to defend myself having, you know, that been what I perceived to be the normal routine. And and to just sit with that, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to, I'm going to give this gift to other people. This is great. Like, yeah. What if, what if we meet no with this positive response? That's like, oh, I trust I'll find somebody else or I'll do, you know, like it, it will work itself out um, is, yeah, it was just such a game changer and, and it's been such a joy to, to pass that on. Uh, so I, I love that. That's like a, a practice and a workshop that you all have. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on the idea of liberal um, is radical healing culture. And because I, I feel like it's something, you know, a phrase I've, I've be, begun to use more and more and I hear more and more is this idea of radical self-reliance. Um, and, and I guess where does that tie in perhaps to the idea of, of radical healing and, and the, the difference maybe between this idea of liberal healing and radical mm-hmm. healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just like laughing. Cause I'm just like remembering this like passage in Maggie Nelson's book, the Argonauts where she talks about how much she just like can't handle the word radical anymore. And, and I feel that as well, even though it's a word that I use often, it's like, you know, now it's just become like almost like emptied of meaning. Mm-hmm. And so this is where like, you know, I think language is, again, that important piece, like, you know, the word radical, you know, the etymology of that is like getting at the root. Um, And so when I think about like radical healing culture, what that means is like, we, we aren't just, you know, looking at the person who is living with trauma and saying like, okay, we just need to like figure out how to manage their symptoms. Um, and, you know, and, and eventually they will become this like fully healed like subject. Right. Because like, even for me, you know, I can heal, for example, from like sexual trauma that I've experienced and sexual assault, but like, I still walk out my door every day as a femme, like, you know, in a world of rape culture. And so the possibility of being assaulted is like always out there. And there's so many different examples that I can, you know, give of this where it's like not even about walking out of your front door, but like, you know, having police come into your home, like with Mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor and, you know, take your life. And so I think many folks in a more like liberal healing framework are actually closer to a conservative healing framework mm-hmm. than they maybe think. And there is this like idea of like, you know, you can eventually reach this like, you know, Buddha like state of being like fully healed. Yeah. And, you know, radical healing culture recognizes that like until we heal the world we live in, right. like we are not going to fully be able to be like healed mm-hmm. beings in the world. Yeah, it's so true. You know, and that's, to me, that's the importance of, of showing up and having conversations and, and doing whatever part I can do, because I feel like that's the ripple effect is, you know, um, 
but it's like the, this awareness that, you know, yes, of course, like I want to take responsibility for uh, processing my sexual abuse, trauma, other trauma, you know, but ultimately it would be wonderful if the world at a collective realized like, wow, what are we doing to cause this to happen in the first place? We could not have to have people have to process this. Instead, we we could actually get underneath to, yeah, to dismantling the things that create these oh. occurrences. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, I feel like, you know, there's so much of it then does fall on those who have survived things to be like, oh, and now I have to fix the system that fucked me up in the first place. Like, how is that fair? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those are the ones doing it because, you know, we, we recognize that, that we have to, um, but you know, that work. And I love the example that you gave of like, just having conversations with people like that is way more revolutionary mm -hmm. than we give it credit for. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, like this vision that like activism is like always like going to the protest mm -hmm. or, you know, yeah, looks like X, Y, and Z actions. But I think those like small everyday conversations that we're having with one another are very vital to, you know, rippling yeah. out um, and having a large scale impact. Absolutely. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of your work. Um, I just, I love everything that I've, I've had such a pleasure to following you and, and sharing and passing that on. And so thank you for showing up. Thank you for doing the work that you do and, and speaking out and, and sharing these insights. Um, so I'm going to give everybody again, um, an opportunity to follow on Instagram. You can follow Margo. It's M-A-R-G-E-A-U-X dot Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N. And it's uh, Margo Feldman dot com as well. Cannot recommend it enough. Um, so thank you again for being a guest. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and share your stories. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you want to no, just thanks again. Like I can't, the time flew by here. I feel like we could have a million more episodes. Uh, this has been so nourishing for me. Thank you for, yeah, having me here. It's been great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And uh, Margo has a book coming out soon. It is called Touch Me, I'm Sick. Um, so be on the lookout for that as well as um, other things that she has published, uh, zines. They're like kind of these tiny magazines. So get on there, get all the content. Um, it is a game changer. I am Christiane Bella, your intimacy architect, and we have been unbuckling some deep, juicy stuff. It is always a pleasure to share with you, and I hope you pass these stories along because this is how we are changing culture one conversation at a time. Thanks so much for being here. Take care. Thank you for listening to Unbuckled. You can join Christiane Bella for another program with amazing guests, stories, and advice every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to check out our new show coming soon.